Okay. Hello, everyone. How we doing? Welcome back from break. And in our last week here, there's a lot to be done. I'm going to take a look over the um, weekly assignments in the next few days and see how many everyone have, has left to do. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of take a look at that. Um, so keep track of that, see how much you've sent in. And we also have now coming up in a week the essay that's due. Uh, so at this point you should have selected your topic and also um, have selected at least one of your your articles that you're going to use for research. You probably might want to look for another, um, maybe even have selected all three of those articles, um, but have started um, you know, reading through those and seeing how you're going to position your argument vis-a-vis -vis those, those articles. Um, so, you know, if there's any questions about that, we can, we can get into that. Um, the other thing is if you've, you're missing assignments and there's quite a few people who are, please contact me about, about that so that you don't fail the class. Um, and yeah, so those are the, those are, that's the big thing. The other thing is that I believe I have the review of the exam posted. So for this class, I believe it is the second Friday of finals week. So the, the second to last day of uh, finals. And you have two hours to do that. And um, just to go over it quickly, uh, there is going to be three sections. Um, the first section is like one word or one sentence answers, kind of definitional things. Um, and so there's going to be uh, 10 questions there. Um, I've put more than 10 questions in the review, and so 10 questions will be drawn at random from the review, and they will differ from the other class. So you'll have two different sets of 10. Um, in part two, instead of answering three questions in the, the draft I gave you guys, I, I think that'll take too much time, um, instead of answering three questions, questions, you'll answer two. But what part two will be about is um, you'll write two paragraphs. And um, one answering one question, one paragraph answering another. Um, and uh, you'll select two out of the the answers given. Um, I've put 11 questions down, um, and two of those will uh, well, a few of them will appear on the exam and you'll have to answer two. And so I'm gonna give you four questions from part two drawn from these 11 and and that will go on the exam. Um, and so then you'll only pick two out of the four to, to answer, right? whichever two you feel best. And then part three, which is the, the more difficult section, is you'll have to write five to six paragraphs on answering um, one of the five questions. Uh, and so, you know, you'll get uh, two or three essay prompts that you'll be able to pick from, I believe two essay prompts, and you'll have to answer that. So there are five questions 
listed for part three, and the two you'll be selecting from on exam day will be drawn from those five. Um, depending on how well this week goes, I might add question number 12 to, um, to part two, which will be, you know, um, regarding uh, Ibsen or Chekhov. Um, if, if we're getting a lot of good response, I'll put that down, not to make things more difficult, but if you feel much more comfortable talking about Chekhov, it might make it easier for you to answer the question. And so I'll put that there as, a, as an option. So I'm going to have this available, it should be available right now, in the course content area. Um, and then at the end of this week, I will put in another revised one that will include all the information here, but add another question or two, um, depending on uh, how comfortable we are. And I don't mean to make, in order to make that more difficult for you or whatnot, it's just, it's actually, if writing about Ibsen is easier, or writing about Chekhov is easier, in part because they're more modern, or in part because we just we just covered it this week. Um, I want that to be available to you to make the exam easier. In order to review for the exam, I've also put out a link to um, a link to the uh, a, a podcast. I've put all our recordings of our classes in the in, in podcast form, um, so you could listen to them. Those links I I sent out this week. I think Monday or Tuesday I sent them out. So. You could go there. I want to get it approved for Apple. Uh, I'm still waiting on that, but you can listen to it in from the link. So if you're, let's say, interested in talking about um, the misanthrope, you could go listen to the misanthrope class uh, and refresh, right? So that that will be your best study guide there. Um, but what you should do in terms of prepping for the exam is, first of all, no section one cold. Section one's easy, it's just the, the definition of things, really. Um, part two is uh, know how to answer those 10 questions, or 11 questions or 12 questions, um, and be like really refined on a few of them. Uh, the idea is that you can get all of this done in two hours. So you're only writing two paragraphs. And really part three is uh, where you want to want to prepare the most. Here, since it's a five paragraph paper, five or six paragraph paper, um, have an argument for each um, for each of the five questions and maybe some sub points. Right now, obviously, if you're getting um, two or three of these offered to you on the day, you you don't have to prepare all of these because just the odds are that you know one you know one of them you don't have to worry about, right? So at least prepare and be pretty good on on four of them, and then in this section you'll you'll just write it out, okay? And so the idea is a lot of the work that goes into doing well in this exam can come during the exam period. And it's just the the point of the exam then is to um, 
is to be able to really demonstrate your knowledge from the class that you've gained from the class. It's not really, it's not really a high, it's not meant to be a high pressure thing. And it should be actually, um, it's actually pretty easy. It, it not, well, not easy, but it's not involving complex interpretation. You don't have to think of uh, a clever answer to any of these. You just have to, you know, kind of take what we did in class and replicate it for a number of things. All right, so stop now. Any questions about the, the final exam? Um, you have, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to say this is, uh, if people could see the chat box, are we able to use our notes during the exam? Um, right now I'm just, I'm going to say no, I don't, honestly, there's really no way for me to, to stop you necessarily. Um, cause we're not doing it in a classroom. We're just going to be doing it, you know, kind of in this setting that we have right now. Um, but yeah, I, you know what? It's fine. You could use your notes for the exam. I'm, I'll just put that down because there's really no, there's no point for you to memorize a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, it, it's really kind of more of a reward for, uh, for part, you know, for, for attending class in person or at least listening to the lectures. So sure, you could, you could bring in notes. But the idea is you don't really know which ones are going to be, which questions are going to be asked of you on the day. So you have to, you know, kind of be preparing for everything. All right. Any other questions? Okay. Um, so let's let's get into it a little bit with uh, Hedda Gabler. As usual, on Monday we'll do kind of a review of you know the the historical circumstances around the play. Um, but I want to open with kind of opening responses to to the play. What did people think of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is it's it's interesting. Um, there's a sort of unities going on, right? Almost. I think it takes place a little more than twenty four hours, um, because by Act Four we're kind of in. I think in forty eight hours later. Um, no, it's about twenty four hours. Yeah, so it is. I, I think we're observing the the Aristotelian unities, where there's a single action, a single location. Uh, and, you know, and uh, within a single day. So it's, um, so it, it's actually very much like Oedipus in that sense. Oedipus also is observing the unities. It's, it's where the unities come from. So and I, I think that is interesting. And we are going to cover this a little bit today. Like how, 
how influenced by kind of classical standards this play is. But I think that was a, you know, a really smart observation, Christina. What did you find interesting about it? Um, I don't know. I just like, I kind of liked how it was super dramatic and like (laughs) all the people were kind of like snakes except for like Mr. Tesman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there is, um, (laughs) yeah, there is a a lot of complexity to the characters. If we're going to be, if we're going to be generous, maybe snake-like if we are uh, a little more condemning, um, what did other people think about the, the characterization? This is more of a general comment, but um, I thought it was really almost like twisted in a way. Like mm. the story was kind of um, like saying it's dark isn't really enough to emphasize. <laughs> like it was like really out there. I thought it was just like there was like one point where. I forgot who, but, like, you know, he wanted to, like, kill himself, and then someone else is like, oh, yeah, you know, have a good time with that, or, like, it was just, like, really, really out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just, yeah. Yeah, there, there is an, you know, it's, um, there is elements of melodrama, so out there could mean that. Uh, but I think what you, what you mean by out there is kind of, um, but by what you're saying, the, the impression I'm getting is like it's it's particularly cruel or particularly kind of dark in tone. Both probably. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. It, it it is the cruelty comes from a few characters, but I mean mostly we see it in in Hedda, right? She's seems to be. Um, I don't. I don't want to say it's mean spirited, but her actions are harmful to say the least. Like I didn't. I didn't get a mean spirited vibe. Mm. I just thought it was. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be. At first, I thought, oh, is it like a joke? Is it supposed to be, you know, poking fun at it? I can't really tell. It's just really twisted, and mm-hmm. so I didn't get like, oh, it's just you know everyone wants to be evil i just think their behaviors were just mm-hmm. you know strange and yeah okay why so hedda does a number of things that um these are, are strange we could use that where however we disagree we could definitely use the word strange um why do you think she does what she does encouraging suicide um destroying the manuscript and this is something we're going to cover throughout the week but uh... are you asking everyone I'm asking everyone yeah (laughs) it's okay if you don't have an answer How about best guess? Well, she's un. I mean, she's unstable, right? Like, not mentally, but her. You know, her behavior is just, you know, unpredictable. Mm-hmm. She's all over the place. I mean, that's my only explanation. Okay. Okay. So I, I think part of this week, then, and I think part of you know reading through it, 
Um, and, you know, if you haven't finished the play yet, you know, th- this is something to consider as you're finishing the play, um, rereading the play, or <laughs> haven't yet started the play, as might be the case with some of you. Um, th- think about what is motivating Hedda, right? Because it, it's hard. And I think uh, I think that's what you're dealing with is that, and, and it's what I dealt with when I was a sophomore in college and first read this play is the, you know, I think it was a sophomore. Anyway, um, it, it's why is she doing what she's doing? And there's clues littered throughout it, uh, throughout, throughout the play as to what her motivation is. And it has to do a lot with her worldview and how she sees herself, um, the background, her background, and how that informs, you know, how she sees others. And it's especially important how that worldview intersects with these uh, uh, implanted romantic notions that kind of existed at the time, um, and to a degree exist today. And so what I want to do today is, is explore that. I'm going to start, as usual, with kind of a presentation. Um, hopefully, you guys will look at something out of that uh, and, and try and relate it back to that. Um, before I do that, though, because I, I know I'm jumping off topic, but I, I fear I'll forget, um, the course evaluations are made available. So you should guys should be able to go do the course evaluations, I think through NetID. That's, they're really helpful, so please do those. Those help me um, with getting information about the class, but also they help me get jobs in the future. So if um, if I have a good kind of class turnout, that'll be that'll be helpful. And, and future employee employers rather look at those at those that that feedback that you give. But anyway, so uh, I'm gonna kind of bug you guys to do that all week, uh, and it would really be helpful to me. But let's um, let's take a look at this presentation. Give me one second to set it up. Okay, so it's going to be naturalism to realism, and and we're going to be looking at ideas of naturalism in in the nineteenth century, and how that kind of informs realism and informs the the writing of uh, of Ibsen, and of course later Chekhov when we get to him. So one thing that kind of influences theater, not just theater, but all arts at that time is this idea of naturalism. You'd say, you see it here, philosophy that says only natural laws operate in the universe. Um, nature is the only thing that exists. Um, everything that we see can be reduced to natural laws and natural causes. We might call this a physicalism. Um, only science and philosophy can explain nature. We, we leave out the spiritual element. Uh, the supernatural doesn't exist. Um, and you can see here's an, a bit of artwork inspired by naturalism. There is uh, people 
within a natural landscape, using the natural landscape and being informed by it. And so it ends up being that the, the natural world or your environment begins to inform who you are. And that's, um, and that is, it begins very early in, in the 19th century, this idea of naturalism, this idea of people being sort of uh, mechanical, that you are pushed forward through time by kind of the forces of nature, and there is questions about how free your will is and whatnot, and then that gets escalated by um, the origin of species, the uh, the Charles Darwin book, which, um, you know, posits how a theory of evolution can work. Darwin wasn't the first person to come up with a theory of evolution. There's Lamarckian evolution that, that predates Darwin. Um, but what Darwin's book did was um, show in, it was published in 1859. I don't think it was well, not, not necessarily poorly received, but I don't think it was received by a lot of people. I don't think it was, it, it took a while for people to, to read Origin of Species, but it gave a mechanistic view of the universe that also subtracted uh, a human telos from the equation. And what that means is that typically churches of, of every stripe taught that humans were kind of the end of um of god's plan that god made human beings and that the world kind of um slopes towards human development and human needs and that is the the telos or the end or end the purpose of something so the telos of nature is humanity right that's the greatest expression of nature and what we see with the origin of species is that humans are one random creation of evolution that will eventually evolve into something else. And so the, that gets rid of the, the telos. The, the controversy with Darwin initially was not that the earth was billions of years old instead of what, you know, whatever young earth creationists say, I think they say like 6,000 years old. Um, that That is a 20th century problem, so to speak. The initial problem is that man is just another part of nature and can be explained through scientific, through the scientific method and through scientific discourse as opposed to the spiritual or other philosophical discourse. Okay, now we get into naturalism. Here is um, Emile Zola. This, that's a picture of middle-aged Zola. Um, and so realism emerges in the 1850s in France. It's a, it's a journal. Um, Zola, who is kind of uh, famous maybe more for his novels, um, he starts writing plays based upon these ideas of naturalism. Um, a place to explore the scientific hypotheses. Um, he, he sees theater as a place to really posit something and then explore that idea, explore an idea of science. And by, by science, uh, not a hard science the way we would think of it, but more like um, the, the human condition and how in environment shapes the human condition. These hypotheses examine how hereditary and environmental factors affect individuals. So that's um, that's, that's important. You know, how, how, uh, things you inherit or how your environment affects and shapes you.
And that becomes a major factor in naturalism and, and in these plays. And it also begins to affect Ibsen, um, or will affect Ibsen later on. Ibsen's play Ghosts, which we didn't read for today, um, but I think it predates Hedda by a, a few years. Um, that's really about how hereditary affects the individual, in that the, the one of the main characters has a... Um, a, a a disease that he inherits from um that that's a uh, a sexually transmitted disease that he inherits that sort of results in his mental deterioration and so that play explores how hereditary effect how the, how the hereditary line affects the individual right the individual isn't free from this or or blazing out of his or her environment but is shaped by his or her environment Okay, so we also get to see this section is called um, Changes in Theater Tropes. Uh, it, it, this section is going to do a little more than that, um, but we're going to look at kind of popular play forms going on and then how these conditions of naturalism, um, you know, move forward, but also how theater troops observing naturalism begin to try and create a more realistic type of play. But let's look at some play genres first. So, the well-made play. Um, this is a very popular play, and as we kind of said before, uh, it draws from the classical form, from Aristotle's form. And uh, Martha, you mentioned that it, it, or no, I think Christina, you mentioned that um, that it's interesting for something that takes place in one room. Well, that that sort of by design plays in the you know the, of the well-made variety tend to be respectful of aristotelian conditions now they're more respectful not necessarily of the unities even though Hedda Gabler is close to respecting the unities but they're really interested in um, Aristotle's tragic plot structure which you could see here where you know you have a beginning middle end um, the action unfolds, it, it hits a, um, a major change in fortune, and then, um, and then there's a, uh, a denouement where the action falls. And so Well Made Play has these following criteria. They're a careful exposition telling the audience what the situation is, usually one or more secrets to be revealed later. Um, so we have at the beginning exposition people talk about what's going on in ibsen this is the maid scene where the the aunt and the maid are like turning down the bed or whatever um and they're having a conversation about uh about things that they already know but saying it in such a way so we the audience can learn um you know th this kind of becomes famous the ibsen maid scene becomes a famous way of informing the audience what the situation is. And Ibsen is taking this from this tradition that starts in France and, and spreads through Europe known as the, the well-made play. So we have exposition at the beginning, telling the audience stuff they need to know. Um, throughout the play, there's a few secrets that are later revealed. Um, these surprises are revealed at critical moments and we learn oh no, the, you know, this person was poisoned by this or, or something like that. Um, 
we slowly build suspense. We have cliffhangers. Um, and usually these are tied to items, right? So something is misplaced and that creates a lot of conflict and we don't know how that conflict's going to be resolved. What is the person going to do? This is very obviously informing Hedda Gabler with the misplaced manuscript. Um, with the more conventional, maybe more middle-brow well-made plays, it's... Um, there might be like a murder and uh, there's a misplaced item which tells you who the murderer is, something like that. You can see this also kind of informs later uh, first-generation detective novels and whatnot. Um, there's a climax in which the secrets are revealed. Uh, a denouement gives the drama a resolution in which all the loose ends are tied up and explanations are given. Um, some of these plays, a lot of these plays have happy endings. So you know, they, you, you get an answer to the mystery, it wraps it up, there's a purging of pity and fear, and then, um, then we move on with our lives. We could see here with, with people like Ibsen and later Shaw, even though we're not, not reading George Bernard Shaw in this class, there is a, um, a way of changing the well-made play so that it, it does a lot more kind of social criticism, that type of thing. Okay. Um, we also have another genre, the problem play. Now here's Alexander Dumas, fil, which just means son, and he is the son of the other Alexander Dumas, who's you know a lot more famous for things like Les Misérables. Um, this Alexander Dumas is a a writer of problem plays. That was his profession, um, and it's exactly what it sounds like: types of drama that discuss social issues. Um, so you know. The famous example of this that we didn't read in class because I thought too many people probably had read it already is um, uh, A Doll's House, which looks at uh, kind of the treatment of women in society and how really it's more about like gender roles and how those um, shape or misshape people. Um, but Dumas was really the f one of the first people to sort of engage a play as an opportunity to examine social questions. Um, it uses realism combined with the well-made play structure. So instead of, you know, kind of over-the-top drama, you, you get something a little more grounded. Uh, there's kind of a thesis in it. Um, thesis plays are, are a big thing in the 20th century. Um, one example of this would be Eugene O'Neill's uh, The Iceman Cometh, if anybody knows that play. Um, that play argues a thesis. However, what the problem plays that the thesis they're arguing or the problem they're examining is more of a social issue. And um, these problem plays really reach their height with George Bernard Shaw. If anybody knows My Fair Lady, that is based on his Pygmalion. Um, they're, they're different, but the kind of the question that Pygmalion is exploring, you could see it in My Fair Lady, which is you know, how environment shapes people and how class shapes um, individuals, you know, and, and how much freedom an individual has compared to his or her class. You know, th those types of questions is what Pygmalion is exploring. And that comes out of the, the problem play tradition. And you could see that with many, many of Shaw's plays is they're, they're kind of uh, these problem plays. And if we were doing um, theater class two, right? Instead of, uh, you know, theater class one, theater class two, we'd probably start with Chekhov and then Shaw because Shaw had a kind of profound effect 
using the problem play form. Okay, um, So we have those things going on. We have the well-made play, we have the problem play. At the same time, performance tradition is also changing. Um, and so we have um, the German language Dutchy Sachs-Meningen, Meiningen, there it is. Um, that is a one of these kind of uh, German duchies, one of the states that used to be part of the Holy Roman Empire, but that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, Germany as a country doesn't exist anymore, but you have this this kind of independent principality, or, or not principality, duchy, and it has its own theater troupe. Not particularly well-renowned until George II takes over as Duke. Um, and there he is, very sternly looking at the camera. And um, he makes the troupe. He hires director um, Ludwig Kroning, I think is how you say his name. And they, the, the, George II really wants this to be like a, a new type of theater. And he makes it really into an experimental theater where you, we can learn how to be realistic. Um, and part of that is the Duke had a lot of resources. So the, the troupe actually doesn't perform very often. They spent months in rehearsals uh, creating very realistic scenes, very realistic moments, discussing motivation. Um, and then they would go out and tour. And they had a profound effect on theater because their standard of realism developed by virtue of the Duke's great resources and, and their per rehearsal times. Um, uh, they were able to do it. They were able to have kind of a, you know, the the original theater laboratory where they can create realism. Um, and certain things like uh, spear carrier, if you know the expression spear carrier, it's just a person who has a very small role, usually no lines. Well, they were no longer just people standing on stage. Now they had to have backstories and their blocking where they moved was... Um, was carefully considered. You know, they weren't just functionaries anymore. They were real people, right? On a real, in a real world. And so the um, the blocking where the actors go on the stage, that became um, that became very important, uh, and, and that was remarked upon in its day. Uh, Andre Antonet, um, he sees a performance of the Meiningen Court Theater. Um, in Paris, he creates his own kind of realistic theater and uh, Theater Libre. And then um, this was a subscription theater. Uh, there was still censors in France. And so instead of kind of opening it for the public, yet only people who kind of subscribe to it come in and they, they could do what they wanted. Um, he was also very invested in realism. His famous staging was Leo Tolstoy's The Power of Darkness, um, in which they had a, uh, a Russian translator carefully translate uh, Tolstoy's short story into a, a drama. They used realistic props and costumes taken from Russia in order to, to create the authentic feeling of, um, of this this Russian space. Um, and he became very famous for his standard of realism in, in the late 19th century. Um, and here we have also 
two others, one in, in London, one in, in Germany, Free Stage, Die Freibühne, my, my German is not great. Uh, this theater was, it's founded also in Berlin, 1899, um, by a number of critics, Otto Brahm was the, the big one, and its first production was Ibsen, Ibsen's Ghosts. Uh, independent Theater Society, um, founded in London by, by a, a Dutchman, um, it also, I don't think it was its first production, but one of its first productions was also Ghost. And it was the first theater to produce George Bernard Shaw. And so you could see right at the beginning of realism, of, you know, kind of creating new performance standards, new rehearsal standards, new standards for costumes and props, that in America is informed by melodrama, right? In America, they're, they're interested in spectacle. And so realism allows you to create a greater standard of spectacle just as better cgi makes a makes a a better um better science fiction movie right because it looks more real cgi is better if it looks more real right um that that's what's kind of going on in america here in europe however they're using um the well-made play and other kind of forms that are inspired by melodrama um, but it's also being informed by naturalism, by this kind of scientizing of, of human behavior, um, but also these kind of uh, realistic stage practices where people start rehearsing a lot, um, rehearsals become longer, they become more important, um, and now we have um, now we have a real standard of something called realism which was cutting edge and is becoming now more and more popular and so there's all of these different kind of sources in different countries connecting and right at the heart of this is ibsen ibsen is writing the the perfect plays for the perfect time he's writing um well-made plays but plays that have social commentary which becomes really popular and he's writing plays that allow and demand kind of realism because of the complexity of the characters. Okay, oh, here's another one, uh, Francois Delsat. Um, and he was an opera singer, th those are his dates. Um, and as an opera singer, he was unhappy with these stagey performances and he started to develop uh, the Delsart method and which connected inner emotions with external movement. And here you see a, a, um, a dancer doing a pose from the Delsart method. Um, he taught the most famous actress of the, the late 19th century, Sarah, Sarah Bernhardt. Um, after he died, there was a little bit of a lull in interest in his work, but in the 1890s, people started using it for dance. And so you start to see um, uh, Delsart was, um, he his, his these kind of external and large movements were used for for dance for kind of experimental dance that was going on in the late 19th and early 20th century and so here's another perf um, innovator in theater who's going about it in a different way but he's trying to connect external um external movement with inner emotion uh in modern times this is not all that different if anybody knows Michael Chekhov, who is the, the nephew of Anton Chekhov and who is a, a major 
acting teacher, and his way of getting at realism is um, is kind of external body movements to get at uh, to get at inner emotion, and so it's still this kind of idea of of how you are are motivated, um, uh, and how the those inner motivations shape the external world. Uh, things you are not saying. That's another important thing, right? Exposition is giving you plot points. Sometimes it's what you're not, what you are not saying, which is also important. Okay. Now we get to Ibsen himself. There he is. Um, Ibsen was throughout his life well mutton chopped. So whenever you see a picture of Ibsen, you should be jealous of his fabulous mutton chops. So he was born in Norway in 1828, as it says here. Um, he left home to work as an apprentice in a pharmacy, I think at age 15, and I don't believe ever saw his parents again. However, he impregnated a young woman who I believe was the daughter of the pharmacist, and then he he quit town. He She had a son he never met. He paid for the son's education. Um, and then he went off into, uh, into kind of more populated areas of Norway, and started writing these kind of early, very early on these melodramas and these more fantastical plays. Um, I think a lot of his stuff was was in part drawn from Hans Christian Andersen and these kind of um, more kind of uh, fairy tale type things. Um, he very early on in his career moved to Bergen, which is uh, I think second or third most populated city in Norway, and um, worked in the the Norse theater there okay um then he started to have some early successes um his first really big ones was brand and pure gint pure gint was later turned into an um kind of a, a musical piece by uh, edvard grieg uh dun, 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 you know that that's music from pure gint but initially it was an ibsen play and um it's about these kind of this this troll community in a magic mountain with um with a mountain king and and these kind of fantastical story uh kind of a, a fairy tale rather elements um and it seems odd that a person who kind of brings realism into the fore and makes and becomes the most famous uh realistic playwright with possibly the exception of Chekhov is um, starting with you know a troll story basically, um, but that this is how he started, and this is kind of the early phase of Ibsen's life. And you could think of Ibsen in kind of three phases. There's the the Brand Pure Gint era, um, and there's other plays like this where he's kind of dealing with um, kind of fantastical elements or larger than life elements. Then there's the realistic period where you have um, ghosts, a doll's house. Had a Gabbler, uh, The Wild Duck, Enemy of the People, um, which is realism with kind of social commentary. And then you have the later symbolism period, um, which the master builder is his most famous there. We're going to cover this. So anyway, at the end of this period, he moves to Munich. Um, in 1877, he turns towards realism. He kind of sees where the wind is blowing. He writes his first realistic drama, The Pillars of Society. Um, in 79, he writes A Doll's House, which is his most famous play. It was very famous then. This, what you're seeing, is a picture of the first manuscript of The Doll's House. This is the title page. Um, 
and uh, soon after ghosts fo- ghosts followed soon after which is also a realistic play about problems of hereditary a really naturalistic one doll's house is also naturalistic it's about how the social environment shapes the individual and shapes gender roles ghosts does this with um kind of sexual mores and things like that um these plays are deeply critical of bourgeois society um still incorporates elements of naturalism into the work as focus on character development is informed by realism. So there's, there's naturalism, as I said before, the conditions that shape a person informed by science, informed by Darwin. But the realism here is um, something very close to life, something that is, is established through a deep dive into the psychology of the characters. Often it's, it's said that... Um, these plays are, are kind of Freudian or informed by Freud. Um, they, they kind of predate Freud. So, you know, take, take that for what it's worth. Uh, but the, the idea of a complex subconscious is what makes a lot of this considered realism. And the kind of complex subconscious is something that will never go away, right? Not until you get to like, very very experimental stuff like we saw what we saw with uh Antonin Artaud um you need to get to that level of experimentation to dive away from realism the the complexity of these characters just stays in theater from here on out okay um let's get out of there and I think I'm back yeah and so uh I didn't put it in here but later Ibsen is you'll see things like the master builder um and there's another play I, oh i can't remember the name of it it takes place on a fjord it's it's very weird but eventually he turns towards symbolism and um he has a big conflict with another really interesting playwright that uh god i wish we had time to do uh, august strindberg who is um is a swedish playwright and they become competitors and uh, Strindberg also writes realism. His plays are, are interested in kind of the, the pathologies of, of characters, kind of dangerous pathologies. So plays like Miss Julie and the Father are, are very important to Strindberg. Um, and they're about uh, kind of dealing with women in positions of power or positions of submission. But then later, Strindberg and his probably his most famous work works like a dream play to Damascus and the ghost sonata, which tip into the 20th century are really about, um, about the dream world, about symbols that kind of appear on stage and represent different things. And while he, he does this Strindberg and Ibsen start competing. And so, uh, Ibsen is also writing these kind of plays. And so Ibsen's later works, move away from realism and if you read master builder or see master builder it's an incredibly strange play um nothing nothing necessarily unrealistic happens on stage you could still hold a standard of realism there but the characters are speaking in ways that are are kind of bizarre and alien um and the actions on the uh, on stage well they could happen are also um they're also more informed by kind of a, a symbolic or spiritual realm rather than what we're seeing here, which is uh, a, a natural, a natural influence or naturalism influence. Um, 
But good. So that was that took us to where one to be today. Uh, Ten fifty-seven. So we covered a lot with Ibsen, um, and so before we leave today, let's try and go through a little bit of the play. Um, so based upon that presentation there, I'll ask this question: uh, How is Hedda Gabler a well-made play, or is it not? All right, so we talked about the well-made play. It's kind of a build towards a big action and a big reveal. Usually the reveal is a secret concealed in a missing object. And then there is a, a revelation and then, um, and then at the end, a conclusion that wraps things up. Do you guys think Hedda Gabler fits into the genre of the well-made play? Professor, what was the question? Sorry. Do you think Hedda Gabler fits into the genre of the well-made play? I think it could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not really sure if it's entirely. I mean, I think certain parts of it could be. Okay. So what's one part that that could be? Like, what what is one thing borrowing? So if we have, if the well-made play involves a missing item that hides a secret, right? What's the obvious, the obvious missing item in this play? The manuscript? Yes, exactly. The manuscript. Um, You know, the other thing I think, I think it was Christina, I think you pointed it out, was that there is a kind of an Aristotelian unity thing going on here which the moment play didn't always use the unities but they were respectful of aristotle's standards so but the important thing i want to take away before we go into next week when we talk about the play exclude our next class on wednesday when we talk about the play exclusively is um is that element of the well-made play the manuscript uh how that holds secrets what that means why is hedda hiding it and all that um so good. So we're a minute over. I will uh, let you guys go and I'll keep this line open for office hours. Um, if anybody wants to stay behind and talk, if not, I will see you on Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you.